Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. Today, we have a returning guest, Scott Schaefer, with us. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Um, it's been, I actually don't know, maybe a year since I joined, but I'm happy to kind of update on the last year in, in my life at, at work and, you know, some personal stuff too. Great. Great. Yeah. So last time we spoke, we were both at IBM and you were my manager. And since we actually have both left, went to two different companies, I went to DirecTV, you went to Hover, and you're doing growth marketing. Tell us about your role and kind of what sets growth marketing apart. Sure. So I'm on what's called the growth team at Hover. It's, um, it's a actually fairly big team, I think, comparatively, given all the different skill sets and sort of sub-teams that are part of the growth team. So the growth team at Hover is made up of a like outbound sales calling team, a small sales team, um, a growth marketing team, which would be like people running paid ads or events, things like that, um, and then a growth product engineering design team, which is some you know, it's only a couple of people, but an engineering team that's building small product features or, or funnel things or maybe you know, optimizing the website, that type of thing. And then I am sort of like analytics across that. So one way to think about it is it's a it's a small company in itself, given all the functions within the small team. And I'm kind of like the analytics across all of that. So how do you leverage analytics to lead that team? Do you use it to understand the relative impact of the various functions on a growth outcome? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it it's fairly similar to how you would, you know, run analytics across a company. There's dashboards that we use to, to sort of monitor and track progress across each of the sub teams. And the teams actually map somewhat to the marketing funnel so you can think of growth marketing as kind of generating demand through like events and driving to the website and things like that um, we have a, a sdr team a sales development team which is for inbound and outbound calling to kind of get people interested in hover that, that have already kind of heard about hover and maybe even used our product and then we have a small sales team which would actually you know sell them on our product and sell them sell the membership and then a growth product engineering design team kind of across the whole funnel building small features or, or website optimizations um, and so i've kind of set up and built dashboards for each in general each of those teams to kind of understand performance in each of those areas and you know just like any other analytics process we'd review the dashboards understand what's working what's not and kind of make decisions from there. I want to ask a question about growth marketing as a function at a very large Fortune 500 company versus at a startup. What are some of the differences you've noticed working in both of those different company sizes? I think growth, like marketing, has like a very specific term. Or I mean, the way I think about it can be very specific in terms of the way I just described it as sort of a small company within a company whereas like marketing or marketing analytics at a larger company is usually just the single function itself 
Um, usually like when you're talking about marketing analytics, you're kind of talking about something that's separate from sales or separate from product or anything like that. So I think that's the biggest difference. I think there can be growth teams at larger companies. The phrase growth um, kind of stemmed actually from, from Facebook back when it was a much smaller company. But I think there are large companies that try and do the same thing where they're trying to build new things or new products or new ways of working within a big company. And so they set up a kind of sub company growth team to, to sort of build that within itself. Um, so I think they, they can work in the same way at a smaller company or big company, but I think it's more likely that you're gonna find a growth team at a smaller company than a large company. At what point should a company hire a growth analytics lead versus a traditional marketing or analytics role? Yeah, sure. So I think like I, like I was saying before, I think growth analytics and that type of role is generally more suited for a younger, smaller company. Um, I'm not an expert on, you know, when teams should hire and when startups should hire, because I, I don't think I've been at a company early enough to, to really experience some of those growing pains. Um, but I think that growth analytics generally lends itself to more of a generalist type role, like someone who is still doing analytics, but can handle a wide, you know, cross section of analysis across the business, across different functions, um, before you would hire people who are more on this, the specialist side. And so I think that's kind of how it separates a little bit in that growth analytics is at earlier, smaller companies with people who are more generalists that are, that are across a wider range of functions or processes. And then traditional marketing roles are usually at larger companies with more specialists. You'd get more data scientists, for example, at a larger company, um, because in general, data scientists are more, more specialist unless they are you know, specifically needed for the product or the, the startup in question. That makes sense. You would, you would want the more broadly um, useful uh, role first, and then you would extend into more specialized categories. Yeah, I think you'd see that not just in like this sort of growth and marketing analytics framework, but I think you go to, that's just like the Broadway small versus large and startup versus enterprise companies work is like, if you're hiring, let's say, a, you know, business development person, um, you want someone who's like a really, really spread out generalist in that role early on, someone who can do basically anything. Um, but then when you're, you know, for example, IBM hiring business development, you're probably hiring a very specific role, like a very specific type of person that can handle a specific type of partnership or sales process. Um, so I think that's just generally the, the difference between startups and large companies is, is that sort of type of person that joins. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it also answers a question I had based on our previous conversation. So if, if anybody wants to go back and listen to our first conversation, it's in season one uh, of this podcast. And we talked about um, really how to hire the perfect analyst and what, what the best skills are um, that 
an individual can build to become a great analyst. And one of the points that you mentioned was striking a balance between depth and breadth. What's the difference in balance for an analyst at a small versus a large company? Would startups want analysts who have a much deeper or much broader analytics training? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, early on you want as broad as possible. Like I think a a good example is um, even now at Hover where we have a very built out data team that does a lot of the sort of processing that gets you to standardize tables. Um, early on, you, we probably didn't have that. And I, I wasn't there early enough to like really experience some of the, the kind of challenges there. But I would imagine if you were someone doing data analytics early on at Hover or any other startup, you would have to be able to do a lot of the like data wrangling and processing yourself um, and not just sort of you know, the visualization, the performance tracking, the presentation, you, you kind of had to do the full the full suite of skills required to get data all the way from wherever it sits to, you know, insight or decision. Um, I think the, the, the bigger you go, the more built out the backend processes get to the point where you have much cleaner and easier data to work with and you have teams that help you with certain factors so that if you are an analyst at a large company, um, you can get away with being very good at a specific skill set. And, and maybe it's not not to kind of pick on this example, but maybe it's the, the data scientist that really um, just needs to know like the core statistical and analytical skills to, to get their job done and doesn't need the kind of full suite that you may need at a, at a much smaller company. Um, so I think that's kind of kind of keep going back to the same theme of like smaller, you need to be more of a generalist and have a breadth of skills. Larger, you, you can be a specialist and you need to have a stronger depth and be a, an expert in, in certain areas. So, so there's a lot more resources at these larger companies so they can afford to hire all of these specialists, but there's still some marketing quandaries and challenges that affect the entire industry. So that's what my next question is about. What what are some of those um, challenges across the marketing industry that are still affecting companies, both big and small? I can think of a couple that, and, and obviously I'm talking about, you know, a very small sample size here. I'm comparing one company versus another. I don't have sort of context to compare all startups versus all enterprise and large companies. Um, but I will say there were some some things that I noticed very quickly that that definitely affect companies big and small. Um, I would say one is, and maybe this is the, the most important one, is sort of the, the, the challenge or like the kind of difference between scale and context. So like if you are a small company, you can have a lot of context about certain data points, right? Like you can be talking to the, the product team, you can be talking to directly to customers. You can know that like when you have 10 signups on the website, you could like literally know who those 10 people are. You could look and see like, here's, here's all their names or, or something like that. And so you can have 
a lot of context about what the data means. But then as the company starts growing, as you know, you get more customers, you have more employees, you have more coworkers, you have to scale this up and you can't have all that context. Um, and I think that that happens even at fairly small companies. Um, and we're starting to see it. I'm starting to see it, especially here at Hover, where like there are places where I have really good context, but then there are other places where I don't have any context at all. And we have to sort of scale up our, our expertise and kind of live with not knowing the sort of ground level truth and, and be able to like see across the business and make decisions without knowing that those intricacies. Um, I would I would say that at larger companies, this is more this is a more difficult task um, because you you naturally have very large scale and you have you know almost no context about the individual products or customers or anything like that. You, they're just data points on the screen. One other fairly widespread, more marketing specific challenge that affects companies large or small is a sort of ROI on on the activities that you're doing. So, so no matter where you go, um, you are if you're in marketing or growth, right? You're trying to acquire, retain, you know, move customers down the funnel, and so you're trying to understand what the ROI of those different activities are. So that's if it's, you're talking about events, if you're talking about paid media ads with Apple and Google, if you're talking about partnerships. No, no matter where you go, we're trying to understand if I spend X amount of money in this channel or this activity, what kind of return can I hope for? And I think that's something that I personally spent a lot of time at IBM thinking about and focusing on, and we're definitely spending a lot of time here at Hover focusing on as well. Quantifying the value of marketing at any company is going to be a challenge. And I've asked this to a lot of podcast guests, and this is a clear commonality, that there isn't one way to value marketing activity, uh, because there's so many different channels and so many different kinds of uh, touch points that there's no standardized measurement. And so it, it becomes this great challenge across an organization to come up with a consensus for how we should value uh, marketing. And oftentimes, there's caveats to that measurement that is not always accounted for it's not an easy easy problem a lot of times i don't know if you're like me but get a lot of e emails or linkedin um, messages from companies that are claiming to have solved attribution and i don't think i, I mean at some point maybe it will get to a, a much better more solved state but definitely nowhere close now agreed what are some technological developments needed to increase productivity in marketing or business analytics? Mm -hmm. Well, first off, I think, you know, making attribution easier is, is one. I don't think it's like, we're just saying it's not a easy solution. It's a complex topic. It'll require a fairly complex solution, but making that easier, I think, and there's a lot of different tools and companies trying to help with that, but, being that easier is, is number one. Um, but also, I've heard about this a lot um, from some of the um, data-related blogs and 
people that I follow, but there's this thought around the modern data stack, which is some of these more modern companies like Fivetran and Airflow and DBT um, that are used to improve and automate a lot of the sort of data processes that most companies go through. Um, and there's talks about how this is, you know, greatly improving, like you're saying, productivity or, or process improvements in, in marketing analytics. Um, I think yeah, I would agree that, that it is helping. I've seen um, Hover use some of those technologies to much more easily do things that were done at IBM in a, in a much more legacy manner. But I would say that um, one challenge there is the complexity is increasing as you have all of these companies that are creating tools that solve very specific use cases. And so you now have, you know, five, six, seven tools that are helping you process data and get it to a clean state. Um, it just puts a lot of challenge to like, you know, make sure that errors don't pop up, make sure that everything runs smoothly. Uh, so I don't, I don't know that there's a, a solution there of like one tool to rule them all or whatever, but um, it does feel like the process of getting data from wherever it is, from you know Google or Apple, from your product, from your event, all the way into a clean, usable table, um, should be easier and would greatly increase, I think, the amount of productivity that an, an analyst can have. I agree. And there's there's a lot of tools that are yeah, that are on the way, but I think the next decade will see a lot of innovation um in in specifically the analytics space. We're still like any, any web-based um applications are typically very slow still. Yeah. You want a tool that does something really well so that it solves you know, your pain point, it becomes the best at this specific piece of the process. But then ideally you want less tools, right? Like you want you want one that can handle everything that, that you do. I think there's some sort of challenge right now between having, you know, five of the best possible tools and stitching them together or having one tool that that does everything other everything else in sort of a one clean sweep. Yeah, I agree. I think that there will be more, probably more consolidation in the future. Mm -hmm. How does leadership style differ between large and small companies? Personally, I, I think leadership is very individual and team, team specific. Um, I can think of large differences between teams at IBM and teams at Hover. Um, I can think of teams that I I think had great leaders at at both companies. I think there's some like common themes there, um, but I do think that in general, I would say that leadership style, you know, there aren't that many differences between large and small companies about what makes a good leader. I think there's some some factors about just being at a larger company or being at a smaller company that makes certain things easier, harder as a leader. 
Um, one, one good example is that it's much easier to be transparent at a, at a smaller startup company. There's less people, there's no financial reporting, like you're not you know, reporting to you know, your investors or anything like that. Um, so there's, I've seen this at Hover, there's a lot of transparency that, that I really like um, that is much easier when you're a smaller company. But I've also seen at IBM very similar, uh, maybe at a, on a different scale, but I've seen very similar levels of transparency, transparency or, or attempts at transparency um, for for teams that are you know much much larger than Hover. Um, so I think that it really it really does vary a lot. There are good leaders everywhere you go. Um, and I think it, it's pretty context specific about who, who and what makes a good leader. That makes sense. Um, one thing that I learned about when we were working together was zooming in and zooming out as a leader and how there are certain meetings where you will be really focused on a problem and, and buried, not maybe not buried, but definitely uh, in the details. Um, and then there's other conversations where you have to zoom out and look at the business in a much wider context. How has your experience shifted over time? Yeah, that's a good question, Alex. Um, that, I don't know, that, that may be, that is probably one of the, the core skills of a leader. I think the, the higher you go up in an organization, the more difficult becomes to zoom in and zoom out. The higher you go up, the more you probably have to zoom out and think of the big picture and think of the whole, you know, company or the whole industry. Whereas you, you know, if you're on a, a smaller team or, or just kind of at the ground level, you can, you can zoom in a lot. I think that the best leaders that I've seen, even even leaders that are you know leading hundreds of people, still have the the ability to zoom in when it matters. They can get down to you know the single data point or the single bullet, and and kind of understand why, or ask ask the the key question that that gets to like why something is good or bad or going well or going poorly. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I have a necessary, you know, solution or like process for how you, how you get to that point, how you become someone who can do that. It seems like the, the people that do that either have natural ability or, or just the, you know, ability to work hard and kind of put in the effort to understand problems and the business and the team at a variety of different angles so that when when they are put on the spot and sort of asked to make decisions and asked to kind of ask the right questions they they really understand what what they what is important and they've thought about it before they've gotten to that that meeting or that you know specific decision point makes sense so I want to ask about your experience, you know, building PowerPoints at a large company and the value that they have versus at a startup and, 
you know, what your experience, your maybe changing experience is by, you you know, in how you use PowerPoint um, to deliver an idea across the organization? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think the broader question there is like, not specifically PowerPoint, but like, how do you disseminate your, your, the information or the insights or or your work? Um, And I think that, at some companies, that's that's very specifically PowerPoint. It's it's like, you know, the PowerPoint share, like the, the meeting where you're you're walking through your work, you're walking through the insights and sort of the decision point and the next steps. Like that process is very hardened, especially at, at a company like IBM. That's like how decisions get made. I don't think that that's the best way for decisions to get made, but I don't think that it's terrible if if certain um, processes are enacted or if like certain ways of doing it um, are done. So like, for example, if if you don't spend, you know, you have a 30 minute meeting to make a decision and the person spends 25 plus minutes walking through the PowerPoint and then you get less than five minutes at the end to discuss and make a decision, I think that that is a poor process, no matter if you're using PowerPoint or, or anything else. Um, so I think that on the point of PowerPoint specifically, um, it can be done poorly and it can be done well. I think there's power by, by its nature, PowerPoint may lend itself to a poor method of decision-making because it leans towards someone presenting to a group um, and then kind of wasting or, or not using the time effectively um, and then getting it to the end of a meeting or getting to a decision and not having enough time to discuss. I think a, a better solution or one that I've seen that Hover uses um, at least a little bit better is that, and, and this is still using PowerPoint, um, and in our case, it's actually Google Slides, but but theoretically basically the same thing. Um, but sharing the slides offline ahead of the meeting and allowing for comments on the slide on the slides before the meeting um, with the idea that the you go into the meeting with the PowerPoint sort of read and understood, there's still, no matter what, like there's still probably going to be some level of presenting or kind of recapping what what was shared or what was pushed in the PowerPoint. But I think people come in with a lot more context. The questions are a lot better and you get to like the discussion and the decision point a lot faster, which is was generally the point of a lot of those meetings. But um, in many places that I've seen, it, it doesn't end up that way. The point seems to be one person presenting, you know, for most of the meeting. So long-winded way of saying that I think PowerPoint or or a similar tool can work well. I think it does lend itself to um, a worse way of, of making decisions, but I think there are ways to, to mitigate that. Instead of trying to, you know, come up with solutions, the, the effort should really be on defining the problem. And can you speak to that and what what other people maybe can learn from that way of thinking? 
Yeah, I think most most disagreements or differences in viewpoints that I've seen in meetings are not about the decision or the results or the the sort of the outcomes. They're almost always about the problem or like the the statement of the facts, right? Like you get a at someone you present a chart and say like this is this is the you know our revenue results from the last five years and someone says like oh well why isn't you know x product line included right like a lot of the challenge is getting people just to the same point like getting to them to like the the level playing field of understanding the problem and agreeing on the set of factors that are going into the the problem or like the discussion around the solution. I don't think, I, I would think that in most cases where a decision is made, if everyone is in agreement on sort of the basic statement of the problem and the facts surrounding it, the decision itself is, is very easy. So I, I would, I would wholeheartedly agree that it's really mostly how do you get people um, aligned on what the problem is and what are the basic facts around the problem. That's great. Final question, futuristic kind of question. Um, you have a strong background in data visualization. What do you think we will ever do data visualization in 3D using VR? Uh, not in my career. I can say that pretty confidently. Maybe, maybe it, at some point, but... Um, I don't feel like the way things are progressing that, you know, when people are talking about Facebook piv pivoting to VR and like the, all the, the new use cases, it doesn't feel like data visualization is one of the, <laughs> the first or early use cases of VR. Um, and I think I feel like we've got a lot of better use cases to work through before we get to um, this type of data visualization done in VR. Yeah, speaking of that, do you want to do uh, a plug for Hover and explain what the company does? I would describe Hover as it's an app. You take eight pictures of your house. Um, the back end or like the Hover itself creates a 3D model of your house. It's a realistic looking 3D model. So as a homeowner, you can use it to then design your home. Uh, our biggest use cases right now are not specifically for the homeowner, but for the you know, external home contractor or the insurance agent. So right now, there are many use cases for measuring homes to understand dimensions. Um, obviously, if you're building a new roof, roof, you need to understand the dimensions. Or if you're an insurance agent and you want to understand the damage, you want to understand the, the size of the home and the dimensions and sort of the size of the, the insurance claim. Um, so right now, you take the pictures and the pictures turn into measurements. So I'd say that's the core use case right now, but we are actively working on expanding that use case into um, more of a, a marketplace where we'd connect homeowners to contractors and insurance agents um, 
that's that's the plug awesome well i really enjoyed this conversation scott i i want to thank you again for coming on yep glad to glad to be on thanks for for asking me to join sure and thanks everyone for listening we'll talk to you soon